Uh, today we're addressing another aspect of why we should stop being Christian. And if this is your, your first time and you identify as a Christian, that statement would be understandably alarming. But before you write us off, you really need to get online and begin with the very first message of this very important series. And if you don't identify as Christian, you need to watch or listen from the beginning because I suspect that we have addressed some of the very reasons why you've kept church and Christianity at a safe distance, and you will find it so helpful. And the core driving motivator in doing this series for me is 2.7 million a year. 2.7 million dropping away from their faith or changing their religious identity to no religious affiliation or nuns. I'm driven by the 64% young adult dropout rate. The nearly two-thirds of U.S. 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up in church who have withdrawn from church involvement or after, after having been active as a child or teen, and the fact that for a huge percentage, it isn't about God or Jesus or even biblical living. It's about the religion that we call Christianity and the fact that somewhere along the way, Jesus' original way got lost. It got forgotten. So we're talking about the forgotten way. And today we're addressing another aspect of Christianity driving the next generation away. That people on the inside and the outside have watched as Christians have worked to enforce religion, uh, religious rules on others that they never signed up for, while they themselves, Christians, seem to find a way around their own rules, their rule book, or their religion, ways in which we somehow find a way to make things fit into a whole to where even those on the outside of faith go, really? Like, even I can see that that doesn't really line up with what you say you believe. Now, moment of honesty. How many of you have ever been pulled over by the police in your lifetime? Just raise your hand. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. How many of you have been pulled over more than once in your lifetime? Okay, frequent flyers, got it, yeah, so, so me too. And, and in fact, uh, so you're not alone. From the, ma from the moment that I could crawl, I have had one speed, fast. I am always in a hurry, even when I have no reason to be in a hurry. I've always been this way. I don't like it about myself, but literally since I could call, crawl. So, uh, so for uh, all of you heathens, who, like me, who have had those lights flashing in your rear view mirror, even if you're a skeptic or not religious, when it comes, as the officer is walking back to their car with your license in their hand, what are you doing? <laughs> Praying, right? It's just like, okay, God, please, God, not, another, not a ticket, not another ticket. I'll never speed again. Uh, God, get me out of this. I will stay two miles an hour under the speed limit for the rest of my life. And you're watching that side view mirror and you're praying. Why? Because you know there's a loophole. See, the loophole is that the officer is empowered to offer for mercy in the form of a warning or just letting you go instead of giving you the ticket that you deserve, right? And I love loopholes. You love, like, we all love loopholes. We all love a technicality or a rule that gets us out of trouble or out of doing something that we really don't want to do. We all love a way of getting around a rule or a law that we don't like. And again, we definitely love loopholes that get us out of trouble. And religious people especially love loopholes. In fact, every religion 
Every religion has a book or a document or a list, has some sort of system that when it gets really, really difficult, you can find a loophole so that you don't have to do what your book actually says you're to do. This is true of all religions, whether it's Christianity or Islam or Judaism. You'll find people that say, here's what it says, but here's what I do, and then they will explain how they can kind of turn it sideways and make it fit. And if you grew up Catholic, like you guys had a great one. It's called confession. Like, like I was so jealous of my Catholic friends. Like you can just go sin like crazy, go to confession, empty your sin bucket and then on the priest, then you get to go back out and just fill it up again and you can go back the next week and pour it. Now, this was a great system. Now my friends were abusing their system, but it was great. And then if you grew up in a Baptist tradition, you just skip the priest because you had a verse. You had 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So maybe you were taught that if you fill up your sin bucket, you drive slowly home so there's not a car accident because you don't want to die before you get to pray this prayer. And then you go home and you get on your knees and you go, Jesus, I confess all of my sins. And in that moment, God forgives you of your sins. He wipes your slate clean. And the best part, if you, again, you grew up in the Baptist tradition, he forgets them. So then like the next night, you come back, say, God, you know, I did it again. He's like, what? Did what again? It's like he's got Alzheimer's or something. Then there's the super liberal Christians. They have a great loophole. Like they run into something they don't want to do and they go, well, we don't actually believe that Jesus said that or that Paul actually wrote that or we just think it was oral tradition or over hundreds of years. So we just discard that. But the point is Christians love loopholes, and any, which means anytime we run into something that we want to do, but the Bible says don't, or we run into something we don't want to do, the Bible says do, we just close our eyes, or we find someone who agrees with us, or it was just a poor translation, or it was written by men, or it's a misunderstanding, or it was purely cultural, or whatever. And the other, the other thing that Christians love is theology. Because theology is where you can build a case for approval or you can build a case for a barricade that keeps you from having to do what God or Jesus or Peter or Paul or John, what the text actually says we should do. And all kinds of horrible things have done, been done in the name of theology. People have been enslaved in the name of theology. People have been burned at the stake in the name of theology. Wars have been justified in the name of theology. And they could point to a verse to show how they were technically correct because with a loophole, you're always technically correct. And see, that's the deal for Christians. Technically, Christians aren't doing anything wrong, but followers of Jesus ask a different set of questions. Followers of Jesus quit looking for loopholes and workarounds and, and justifications for their actions and behaviors. Because it's dangerous to be a loophole Christian. In fact, some of you uh, may not know this, but this very building in which we are currently gathered, for those in the room, is a testament to this. In the early 90s, this building was home to Faith Metro Church, one of the largest churches in the Wichita area. And in 1995, the senior pastor was arrested in San Antonio, Texas. He was arrested in San Antonio for working with a Colombian drug cartel leader to launder $10 million worth of cocaine profits through the church as long as the church got 10% and he got a, a bonus or a commission for his efforts. Well, it turned out that the 
Colombian drug cartel contact, contact was actually an undercover ATF agent investigating money laundering in San Antonio. I've read the full transcript. It reads like a suspense movie, but it wasn't a movie. It was a heartbreaking reality. And to get to that depth of twisted reality, it doesn't happen overnight, does it? I mean, it was one, it was a series of one loophole choice after another, after another, after another. Some of you have been impacted by an extramarital affair, either in your own marriage or someone close to you, maybe your parents, maybe a sibling, and you know an affair does not happen overnight, does it? I mean, somewhere early on it goes, we're just flirting. We're not, we're not doing anything wrong. We're not crossing any physical lines. People have hated other people with a verse. People have persecuted the Jews and murdered Muslims with a verse. Men have dominated their wives with a verse. People have enslaved black people with a verse. People have hated and persecuted races and entire groups of people with a verse. And there are articles and podcasts and entire books that are written where they cherry-pick dismantle and then reassemble different passages of text for the purpose of affirming whatever loophole it is that they're trying to exploit when it comes to life, sex, money, and relationships. For centuries, people, especially Christians, have always found a way to use God's word to disregard God's will. People have even justified mistreating people for whom Jesus died using his father's words. It's like, just give me a minute. I'll find a theological or a biblical justification for just about anything that I want. That's what loophole Christians do. They ask, how close to sin can I get without actually sinning? How close to the line can I get? Jesus ran into this all the time. Now, the law of Moses had been given hundreds and hundreds of years before, but by the time Jesus arrived, the religious leaders were so in love with the commands, they forgot the intent of the commander. So they came up with other commands to keep people from accidentally violating the actual original commands. They were rules to keep people from breaking the rules. Now, we do that as well. I mean, remember growing up. Maybe your parents were in the kitchen, you know, especially if you're a girl, and your dad was around the house, your parents in the kitchen, you're sitting alone in the living room or maybe in the basement with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and suddenly you dim the lights down, and your dad and mom said, oh, no, we have a rule. Thou shalt not dim the lights. Okay, the lights stay on full speed, and you're like, you yell at me all the time to turn off the lights, but now you say, don't turn off the lights. Like, what's up with that? They had a rule to keep you from breaking a rule. They didn't want you messing around. It's like, you, you just, so you just keep the, keep the lights on, because if you keep the lights on, it'll keep you from messing around. So the real issue was messing around. So we're going to have a rule to keep you from breaking the rules, or why did our parents give us a curfew? Or for those of you that are raising kids, like, why do you give your kids a curfew? Well, it's a rule intended to keep us from breaking all kinds of other rules. I mean, maybe you heard growing up, said, you know, nothing good happens after whatever time it was that your parents determined that nothing good happens after, like all these bad things. And when Jesus showed up, they had hundreds and hundreds of these. And over time, they'd begun to equip the rules to keep you from breaking the rules with the actual rules. And in one of these conversations, uh, Jesus, he confronts our tendency to use loopholes 
when it comes to God. Here's what happens. This is Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Now, the tradition of the elders was this body of rules that had been created long after Moses was long gone to keep people from accidentally breaking the law. So they said, your disciples don't keep the tradition of the elder, traditions of the elders. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, see, we hear that in like 21st century, you know, we, you know, of course you wash hands, but this wasn't about germs. They didn't know germs back then. This was about religious law, and in the law, the priest had to do these various ceremonial washings. One of them was to wash their hands all the way up to the elbow, and this was uh, required in their system um, for, for the priest, but the Pharisees decided to apply it to everyone. So over time, this became required in their system, but it was not a part of Moses' law. And apparently Jesus' disciples, they didn't wash in such a way to satisfy the rules of the elders. So Jesus ignores their question. He's like, well, I got a better question for you. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his mother or father is to be put to death. Now, pause. Aren't we glad we did away with that Old Testament? Like, none of us would be here, and certainly none of our kids, right? But you say, if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. So, in other words, you've taken God's Word. You've taken theology, and you've twisted it to empower you to do the very opposite of what God has commanded you to do. So here's what they did. They had an actual command, honor your father and mother. But they realized that Moses didn't say until your parents are a certain age or until you're a certain age. And as your parents get older, honoring your father and mother begins to become expensive. So they're like, we want to, com- we want to keep the command of God, but we don't want to spend all of our money on our aging parents. Our parents, it's like they keep living on and on and on, and they didn't have places where they could go and be safe and take care of like we do now. Uh, but So they came up with this great idea. There was this other law that had to do with dedicating everything to God. So what they did was they came up with a twist where they would just dedicate everything they owned to God, and then when their aging parents needed help with groceries or to pay rent or whatever it was, they'd say, I, I would love to help you, but I have dedicated everything to God, and I just need to keep it in case God needs it. So they manufactured this rule to enable them to not support their parents and ultimately to not break God's law. Thus, Jesus says, you nullify. You nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now, before we get all McJudgy about the Pharisees, we all do this, okay? We all nullify. In other words, we take the clear and we fog it with the unclear, it's if we just look at it just this way and turn it just right and kind of ignore this part and put this, this part over here and just ignore what's in plain sight, I'm good. And you've taken what God said or didn't say and twisted it in such a way that it serves your own purposes. And we are all guilty of this. See, the problem is Jesus doesn't like it when we use his Father's word to avoid doing his Father's will. Jesus' response to us when we do that you hypocrites. Now, Christians, especially in America, we live this. And sadly, we think it's normal. 
In fact, I've, I've talked with many Christians who, who don't read the Bible. And we've talked about that. And they've actually been honest enough to admit that the, reason, the real reason why, after getting through the layers of excuses of, you know, I don't have time, I'm so busy, or it's too hard to understand, or do I really need to read it? I mean, my freshman college class professor in English, you know, taught us how it's just simply oral tradition, and it was myth, and it was written hundreds of years after the fact. And after you sort through these layers of excuses, the real reason that they're afraid to read is because they're afraid they're going to discover something that might actually cause them to have to live differently. In other words, if I don't read it, I don't know it, and therefore I'm not accountable to it. Yet intuitively, we know, we know this isn't true. I mean, where else does that work in life? I mean, officer, I didn't know this was a speed limit. Well, you do now. Here's your ticket. Have a good day. And then you, you get one group of Christians that forms their worldview, their twisted lens, looking at the written word, and then you get another group of Christians that they form their worldview through their twisted lens of the written, reading the written word, and they've got their loopholes, and they look at each other and go, obviously, they don't get it. That other group doesn't get it, and this has just become the norm for Christianity. That's why there are hundreds of denominations. It's why there are hundreds and thousands of churches that just can't get along together. It's why you have whole groups of churches that are predominantly conservative, right-leaning, and then you've got a whole group of churches that are predominantly left-leaning, and you listen to these guys preach. It's like, do they have different Bibles? You sort of just have taken your whole political agenda, and it's become the filter through which you see the Bible. How does that work? It's simple. You just simply become a loophole Christian. You just avoid and ignore what's inconvenient for you, and you focus on the stuff that other people are or aren't doing. And what's interesting is that through the years, each generation seems to have a sin or a group of sins that it's really focused on. I mean, there was a time, you may not know this, but there was a time where you couldn't be divorced and be part, for sure, of the Catholic Church, but of the evangelical churches as well. Because divorce was a non-starter. And then that kind of came and went. And then it, then it was interracial marriages. Then there was a generation where listening to rock and roll was a violation, especially in the 70s and 80s. Rock, listening to rock and roll was a violation, and you would have to bring your rock and roll music albums to gatherings so they could burn them. And then there was dancing. Like, you know, dance, like I don't drink, I don't dance, because I might date the girls that do. I don't know. And it's... Uh, then there was a consumption of alcohol. In fact, I knew a guy for him, like this was definitely on his list. It was shown by the fact that he was always bragging about, quote, in my 50 plus years, my lips have never touched alcohol. But then something happened. A few years ago, he visited the church that his daughter was a part of, and they served communion. And after he drank the juice they gave him, he said, that tasted kind of funny. And his daughter leaned over and said, that's because it was real wine. And because I am a horrible human being, I confess, I found an inordinate amount of pleasure in that. Just seeing this guy's pedestal getting kicked out, because never again did I have to listen to him brag about what an amazing Christian was because alcohol had never touched his lips. I'm like, has now. But see, with every generation, there's always been something where theologians and loophole Christians and Christian leaders would pick like two or three things that weren't a problem for them, or secretly were, 
and they get really loud and really intense. And they hold them up higher than the rest. But the interesting thing is none of their lists ever matched any of the lists in the Bible because in the Bible there are some sin lists. But I have yet to see any loophole Christian or Christian stand up with the entire list and say all of these are equally offensive to God. I've just not seen it happen. They pick and choose. And then when you say, well, hey, what about you? Oh, and then they explain their loopholes. But Jesus showed up. He said, look, okay, just forget the commands for a moment. I want to talk about the intent of the commander. And this gets to the heart of why God even cares about our morality, cares about how we do marriage or family or singleness, how we raise kids, how what we do affects others. Jesus reaches way back. He says, let me, let me begin with the intent of the commander, a new command I give you, love one another. This is the forgotten way. This is how everyone is going to know you are my follower. It's not your theology. It's not the, the you know, your... It's not how you interpret certain verses. As I have loved you. And the amazing thing is this took hold. And it changed everything. It could happen again in our lifetime, in our generation. Because in a situation very similar to ours, you had Jews and Greeks and Romans and North Africans and men and women who embraced Jesus, who before Jesus had very different worldviews. They were not looking for a new worldview. They had a very different understanding of morality or, and the law. But in this forgotten way, it became the filter through which they began to make every single relational and life decision. Twenty-some years later, Jesus is gone. There are now a bunch of Christians in Rome. So the Apostle Paul writes them a letter, and he gets back to this basic teaching that all began, this whole thing, and it leaves no room for loopholes. He writes, let no debt remain outstanding. In other words, pay your debts. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt, because you never pay this off, to love one another. Jesus followers, disciples, the forgotten way is you're to wake up every day understanding that you are in debt to the people around you to love them because of the way your Heavenly Father loved you. And if you were to say, you know, God, thank you so much for loving me so much. What can I do for you in return? He would say, love one another. That's what you could do. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law and the commandments, or fulfilled the law. The commandments, in other words, the commandments haven't ceased to matter. Rather, I am giving you a new lens through which to see and apply these commands. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there is, they're summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we've heard this so many times, I don't want us to miss this. Jesus, as he said in one of his other teachings, Jesus is not abolishing the commands. Rather, he says he's revealing the true intent behind the commands that was always there from the beginning, the motivation. In other words, I don't just not commit adultery because it's a command, because it might break a rule. In light of what Jesus has done for me, I don't break a command because it would literally crush my wife, my children, my in-laws, my integrity, my relationships with you, destroy another family, create a ripple effect that will permeate into the second and third generation. 
That's why you don't commit adultery. He says, I don't steal from you, not because it's a command or a rule, but to steal from you is to hurt you, it's to dishonor you. And I can't hurt or dishonor you without hurting and dishonoring God, the Heavenly Father. I don't murder because it's the opposite of love. It's hate. It isn't about just being a rule. And I can't hurt and I can't dishonor you without hurting and dishonoring God. And you can't hurt and dishonor me without hurting and dishonoring God. Do you see how powerful this is? Do you see how simplifying this is? Do you see how clarifying this is? Paul is basically saying, love your neighbor is the filter through which you make every single decision. The rest of Scripture is simply commentary on how to love your neighbor and how to love one another. So you don't dare... You don't dare take a verse, a passage, or a story, and you use it to mistreat or withhold love from someone else or interact with a, in a way with them that hurts them or dishonors them. You hypocrite. Disciples don't look for workarounds and loopholes. Religious people do. Christians do. Disciples don't open the Bible trying to figure out how little can I do? How little can I give and keep God happy? In other words, here's, here's a great question disciples need to ask periodically. When was the last time being a follower of Jesus cost me something? Like, really? See, a Christian will go, you know, I've worked hard for this income and this bank account and this retirement account. And like Luke Bryan, the country singer, sings about in the song of Buy Dirt. And as long as I send up my prayers and throw a little money in the plate at church, you know, God and I are good. How little can I give and keep God happy? Disciples don't look at money that way. Christians go, I can be sexually intimate with someone who's not my spouse because it doesn't say in the Bible that we have to have a wedding, so we'll just consider ourselves married and just enjoy the benefits of marriage and have all the sex that we want now and save money, and we'll be married in God's eyes. But even if it doesn't work that way, he'll just forgive us. Disciples don't. Christians say, the Bible says God is love. He understands that we love each other, so it's okay. Disciples don't. Christians Go, honey, it says right here that you're supposed to submit to me. Ha! Disciples don't. Christian goes, yeah, it says you're supposed to love me as Christ loved the church. You don't do that so well. So ha! See, Christians use the Bible like mace. Disciples use the Bible like a mirror. It begins with, how do I, how do I love my neighbors myself? How do I love others as Jesus loved me. See, it begins with when it comes to what I do with my money, with my singleness, with my marriage, my classroom, what's happening at work, or how do I handle myself sexually, or my relationships, my associations, my business, my family, my prodigal son or daughter, my parents who just don't get it, you know, my church, in light of what Jesus has done for me in these relationships, in these circumstances, what does love require of me today in all of these situations and relationships? 
Where's the loophole in that? And see, I'm just like you. I want there to be a loophole because this is hard. For Christians, it's easy to loophole my faith, especially as we're getting ready to come up on like one year from the primary elections. It's easy to loophole my faith through my politics, to just have this whole group of people that I don't agree with and that I don't like, that I get to talk bad about them and they're, they're idiots. But disciples move in the direction of people they don't like. Why? Because Jesus did. Being a disciple will draw you out of your comfort zone. It will cause you, it'll draw you into some new kinds of relationships. It will cause you to have coffee or lunch or have over for dinner people that you never thought you would. It will draw you into conversations where you actually listen rather than just relying on everything you've always believed or what your chosen news outlet tries to tell you. It has nothing to do with abandoning your faith or compromise or leaning too far to the left or too far to the right. It has everything to do with looking someone else in the eyes who is nothing like me and asking the question, in light of what Jesus has done for me, when I didn't deserve it, when I was way off the reservation with what God would have, what does love require from me? But that is hard because it leaves no room for loopholes. Now, for some of you, it bugs you that I repeat things over and over and over again. It's like, all right, Chad, I get it. Can we please, for the love of God, move to a different subject? I get it. Love one another. What does love require of me? Over and over. Yes, I know you got a tattoo. Big deal. Here's my question, though. Have you mastered this? Have you mastered this in your life? I mean, there are days I look in the mirror like, am I truly the only one who struggles so intensely to love like this? Am I the only one with an inked reminder and still I struggle to live this every day? Has this really sunk in and grabbed a hold of your heart and your mind and begun to transform how you relate to the people around you, maybe especially the people who are nothing like you? Or, and I'm not trying to shame or question you, there's a difference between being questioned and being asked a question. I just want you to ask yourself, am I being transformed in the way that I live? In the way that I relate to others? Or have I just left here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday over the past weeks or months or logged off and the moment that I get to the parking lot I've already mentally moved on to other things because you need to understand Christians are interested in information disciples are interested in transformation within the past few months at school or work or home has someone commented about there being something different about you? Has anyone close to you recently taken notice and said, like, what you did, how you handled that, that, like, six months ago, a year ago, you would have handled that very differently. That was amazing. Like, you were so patient. That was so kind. That was so generous. There's something different, but you've changed. What's up with you? And I press this because I know for some of you, things with you and God these days, like, if you're honest, like, they're kind of uneventful. They're kind of boring. It's and maybe if you're being honest, you'd just say, like, I just take comfort in the fact of knowing that I've got heaven when I die. And other than that, you, 
rather than go down, uh, go down a bold and uncertain path, you sense God wants to take you, you've kind of found a nice park bench along the way and you're just enjoying the view. For some of you, you're reluctant to begin regular reading and studying of the New Testament or the Bible as a whole because maybe you, because you're afraid you might have to change some things. For some of you, things haven't been the best at home. But show me the son, show me the daughter, a roommate or a husband. You show me a wife who truly decides to wake, begin to wake up every day and decide no matter what I feel, what I've decided, no more loopholes. I'm done. No more workarounds. I have a debt of love. And today, I'm going to begin every conversation and behave towards this person through the filter of in light of what Jesus has done for me. What does love require of me? And whatever it requires, giving words of encouragement. Maybe it's to seek professional counseling. Maybe for you, maybe as a couple, maybe as a family, how I handle my money. You know, because honestly, I live as though 99 to 100% of it is for me and my consumption, storing it all the way for my sunset years, rather than investing generously in what God wants to do through me now, today, while I'm living and breathing in the community, in my local church. I mean, what if you parented that way? What if you began to husband that way? What if you began to wife that way? What if you began to respond to your boss who irritates you that way? What if you dated that way? What if you responded to those irritating coworkers that way? What if you led that way? What if as a church it was a driving question? And I'll answer it for you. I'm convinced that this room would fill up. I'm convinced this room would fill up and we'd have to go to multiple services. And before long, with what new lifers are doing outside of these walls, through the week in their workplaces and communities, if we cease to exist in this community, that absence would be felt. The next generation would enthusiastically embrace a life defined by a prevailing faith and a selfless love that never leverages loopholes. Why? Because they saw it in us first, in the generation ahead. I mean, can you imagine the transformation that would take place in our homes, in our city, in our community? Can you imagine how we could begin to reverse the tide of the next generation towards God, towards the church, towards Jesus Christ? A movement laser-focused on loving our neighbor as ourselves, because and I'll wrap up with this. Just consider this. Aren't you glad God didn't look for a loophole when it came to his loving you? I mean, I don't know about you, but I know me. I have given my Heavenly Father countless reasons to use a loophole to get out of loving me. If he decided not to use any of them to get out of loving me, what right do I have? What do I think I have the right to look for a loophole to get out of loving you or anyone else? Is that complicated? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. It costs us. That kind of love costs us. It costs us time and money and thought and emotional energy and effort and patience. Loving others beyond just a hug and a handshake and 65 minutes on a Sunday and 20 bucks, 20 bucks in the giving box in our culture is so inconvenient. Of course it's easier just to believe stuff. So as I wrap up, some of you, as I was talking, you were trying to push it down, but you know there's an area of your life where you've been leveraging a loophole that you've either created or embraced. There's an area of your life, just come on, deep down, you know, you know. I love you too much to not challenge you to face the truth. You've been leveraging a loophole. 
You've been leveraging a loophole to avoid doing something you should do. You've been leveraging a loophole to avoid giving something up that God wants you to surrender. Maybe you've been leveraging a loophole to enjoy something now that your Heavenly Father wants you to wait to enjoy. And for some of you, if you're honest, you're terrified too long to, to linger too long on the question, what does love require of me? Because to actually do what love requires of you, it's, it's going to cost you something. <laughs> but man, I'm telling you, that's where your faith will become alive. It will require you to give more or to make a change or to confess or cut something loose and you're afraid. It may require you to finally drop your defenses to individually or as a couple get counseling. But let me urge you from love and life experience, do not let fear hold you back. And I want to make something really clear. I'm 55, and I will tell you, at 18, 55 seemed like one foot in the grave. Not anymore. But as Paul says, not that I have somehow attained this or perfected this, because I haven't. I think that's part of what makes me so passionate about this is because I'm in this very same thing with you. It's worth it. It may be a struggle and painful at first or even for a long time, but it will be worth it, and you'll be so glad that you did. Are we going to be able to show it? We'll send it out. For those of you from that first video, you get no resolution today. (laughs) But I promise it's there. Let me pray for us. Father, you're so good. God, I pray for every single one of us in this room that is listening, and especially for myself. Because we cannot love as Christ loved without your help. His relationship with you, his consistency in coming to you in prayer, in private places, the time that he spent with you, is what empowered him to do all that he did. So, Father, I pray for all of us that you will lead us into those things that will grow and develop our relationship with you so that your Holy Spirit could truly work through us. For those of us that trust you, that just trust you enough that you'll enable us and empower us. Every one of us in this room, those listening online, Father, we, we know that area. It's time for us to quit excusing and justifying I pray that you would give us the courage to do whatever it takes to once and for all deal with it. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.